I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Environmental politics is about people. I know that may seem obvious, a truism in a year stricken by so many extreme weather events. From California's worst wildfire in history to once-in-a-century hurricanes hitting the Carolinas, record heat waves across Europe, typhoons in Asia, and even snow in the Sahara. There's nothing abstract about the havoc and ruin that follows these events. But all too often, we discuss climate change into abstraction with terminology like rising atmospheric CO2, ocean acidification, and two-degree scenario planning that characterizes this risk scientifically, but often insulates it from the personal perspective. Again, environmental politics is about people. It's an observation that my next guest knows only too well. The confluence of the environment and people has formed the core of his political message for the past 40 years. So there's perhaps no more significant time than now as the EU's definition of sustainable finance becomes more environmentally aligned. And as Germany gets set to go from being the biggest producer of brown coal in the world today to phasing it out by 2030 in an energy transition that ultimately produces green jobs. Whether you're skeptical or not, you've got to acknowledge its ambition and just how far Germany has come in the last decade as it transitions away from nuclear power. So to understand why the linkage between environmental politics and people is so important, I sat down with Reinhard Butekoffer. Reinhard is co-chair of the European Green Party and member of the European Parliament. He sits on the Committee of Industry, Research and Energy and the Committee on Foreign Affairs. He is the vice chair of the European Parliament's Delegation for Relations with the People's Republic of China, a member of the Delegation to the United States, and a substitute member of the ASEAN Delegation. Before getting elected to the European Parliament in 2009, he was the co-chair of the German Green Party. Welcome to the show, Reinhard. It's great to have you here. Well, I'm happy to be part of your program. I'm very thankful. So I would like to start off with your backstory because it's fascinating. I mean, you've got so many roots, deep roots in activism um, from your student days to the local level, now to the EU level and certainly at the global level. Well, I started getting politically motivated about 50 years ago when I learned about the Soviet invasion in Czechoslovakia. That's one of the first events in the wide outside world that I can still remember from my younger days. When I then went on to Heidelberg University after having spent a year in high school in Wisconsin, that was the day, the heyday of the radical student movement, and everybody was joining this in one way or another. And uh, I kept chopping around to see where I could find my place, and I became part of it. And uh, that lasted a while, and then it went sour, and, and obviously we had not really found a way of motivating citizens. We had not found a language of talking to citizens so that they would take that seriously. And uh, that forced everybody to reconsider. And for me, that led towards the Green Movement. And in a certain 
perspective, uh, I considered that at the time as a radicalization of my own thinking because um, this uh, leftist optimism in the development of the productive forces was being obviously undercut by everything we learned about Silent Spring and everything we learned about nuclear and the dangers of nuclear. So uh, there appeared a new perspective that maybe uh, we should focus more on the questions around how do we develop the uh, relationship that our society has with nature. Hmm. And the other aspect that um, had always been very important for me was individual liberty, individual freedom, emancipation of every single person to live their lives to the fullest and to not be denied opportunities. And And those two core elements of what the Green Party has always stood for have been my guiding stars, I would say, ever since. Let's stick on the Green Party, particularly in a German context, because, I mean, like you said, it's a it's a radical proposition combining human rights, peace and the environment. But for most of its history, and you've been part of it since, what, the mid 1980s. Right. Um, I, I joined in 84. It's been the opposition party. Um, so Patrick Kelly would say it's the anti-party party. What's the argument for it now evolving or maturing into something just given the systemic risks that we face, I mean, certainly from a peace perspective, with all the saber rattling between the U.S. and North Korea, for instance, certainly with these systemic risks like climate change, isn't it time for it to be less of an opposition party and more of a mainstay party? And how, if that's true, how do you get there? Well, I would say the uh, political environment of the Green Party of Baden-Württemberg, where I grew up, has probably been a bit special, even in the German context, because we've always seen a more pragmatic approach there. Um, in the mid-'80s, when I joined, it was already a foregone conclusion that we were not content with just opposing the mistakes that governments were making. We also wanted to do better, so uh, we, for instance, negotiated with the conservatives over possibly forming a state government, a coalition between CDU and the Greens uh, in the state of Baden-Württemberg in 92, when that was unheard of in the rest of the Green community. We didn't go there because they would not take our issues seriously, but the approach has been persistently con uh, pursued. We want to do better, and we don't just want to represent single-issue perspectives or specific audiences or a, an alignment of very selected constituencies. We want to create a hegemony for a transformative perspective that allows everybody to be part of that transformation. So it's addressed at promoting the common good, 
but it's also addressed at that goal by op- opening up and by offering everybody to be part of the transformation. That led us very early to talk to um, parts of the population that would never dream of, think, uh, of voting green, like uh, the farming communities, which we felt would have to play a major role, like the small businesses, or even in Baden-Württemberg, which is the headquarters of Daimler and Audi and Porsche and Bosch, huge automotive companies, also talk to them. What would have to be their contribution? What would they want to contribute? So that dialogue-oriented approach prevailed very early, and that has led to a situation where in that state today, Greens are the number one party. Uh, In the polling, we're at about 33% of the vote, ahead of the conservatives with with, uh, 27, and everybody else far below. So the government is led by a friend of mine who's been first elected to the Baden-Württemberg Parliament in 1980, Voters had a long period of time to really get to know that person, and now they trust him more than they trust any other prime minister in the 16 federal states of Germany. And there we show that um, green thinking wins from not being narrow. We don't want to own green thinking. We want to share it with everybody. And today, there would be so many companies in Baden-Württemberg, companies that are big in local business, but also in global business, that would preach the transformative gospel just as much as we would, because they have understood that it's an economic opportunity, it's a jobs opportunity, it's not just helping the environment, quote-unquote, it's helping society. Given the fact that political parties have only so much political capital, you know, and, and, and it's a choice that how you spend that capital, and clearly for the Greens it's been uh, a lot about uh, the just transition, you know, better jobs and managing through better environmental objectives. But what happens when suddenly you have a Chemnitz, for instance, um, when the Greens admirably, and I say that because I've had my own sort of history working with um, German NGOs um, off the coast of Libya, um, and I've been impressed and immeasurably blown away by, by their commitment. But how much, how do you balance, you know, the, the, the weight of all of these policy items? Well, obviously, it's not easy. We've been making a lot of mistakes. And we try to learn from our mistakes and hope others will too. But one core principle is that politics is about people. And even environmental politics, it's about people. People and their concerns, people and their ambitions, their hopes, their fears. If you say, I want to save the climate, a lot of people will feel that you're not going to take care of their concerns. Well, this guy is saving something that's very abstract. That's not me. 
I recall going to um, an industrial region in eastern Germany, uh, bordering on Poland, where there's still a lot of open pit lignite mining. And a couple of thousand jobs in that region depend on that industrial sector. Now, obviously, lignite is about the worst, almost the worst fossil fuel that you can find. Um, And from an environmental point of view, it's paramount that we face out the use of that kind of energy resource as fast as we can. But when I met the the mayors of the small municipalities there, their first sentence was, look, don't tell us like your friend uh, did the other day that you want to face us, face out coal and and we have to comply. Talk to us about what role we can have, what future our region can have, and how you can help us transitioning. And I think they're they're right in that demand. If we just focus on an environmental perspective without taking account of social concerns, well, why would people listen if they get the impression that we're not listening to them? So I spoke to them about what other kinds of business we could create in the region, how we could use the competencies that they have, how we could use the traditions, the industrial traditions that this region owns to create an economy of the future that is less harmful for the environment, but gives the people a chance to not just have a job, but also to be helping to shape their own future, to play a role, to not just be an object of developments, but subjectively, actively promoting it. And I think that's what we have to understand. And there cannot be a trade-off between environmental concerns and social concerns. Most people are motivated to a very large degree by what uh, in American politics it's called uh, the bread and butter issues. Will I have a job? Will my kids have a good future? Can I afford sending them to school? And so on and so on. If you don't contribute to that conversation, you're irrelevant. So we have to argue that the solutions that we bring to the table are offering them better opportunities, that there are more jobs now in the renewables sector than we still have in the fossil fuel industry, that we can create a more modern industry that can stand up to international competition, and so on and so on. And then you win the hearts and the minds, and then you can also grow stronger. There's a very nice... um, quote from the scriptures from the New Testament where the apostles are being told when they're sent out to the world to preach the gospel they're told talk to the Jews like a Jew and talk to the Greeks like a Greek and talk to the heathen like a heathen so speak the language that the people speak you want to talk to don't just speak your own private language that nobody understands and when environmentalists 
do as the apostles have been told and express our transformative ideas in the language that people with social and economic concerns understand that address their issues, I think we can win the argument and win the support and win the battles. Were there one or two things that really resonated with, let's say, I mean, the cold labor unions? Because, I mean, what you're talking about, the uh, Commission on Growth, Structural Change and Employment put out by the German Federal Cabinet is incredibly ambitious and fantastic. Uh, you're talking about a phase-out of coal-based power gen, um, uh, a 60% reduction of emissions by 2030. Um, it's a fantastic template. What really sold specifically the labor unions, um, what, what brought them on side? Well, I would say that the German labor unions, which are probably among the stronger unions that you will find in the West or even globally, are not completely united. One of the strongest unions that we have in the country, the public sector and the service sector union, is led by a member of the Green Party, uh, whereas there are unions in the mining sector and the chemical sector that uh, still sometimes act as if uh, the Greens were, well, hard to be trusted at all. Uh, but we can, by today, show that what we argue is not just theoretical solutions from a textbook, but that reality proves us right. When we started promoting renewable energies, nobody seriously believed that it would ever have a major impact. I recall that the uh, lobby of the four big utilities that controlled energy production in the country at the time publicly stated in an advertisement that renewables would never contribute more than 4% to overall energy <laughs> consumption in the country. That was their firm belief. And we proved that this was just a negative fantasy. I recall when we started this, after a while I got a letter from the executive board of the uh, Electrical Crafts organization nationwide in Germany, and they said, thanks to your policy of promoting renewables, we have more business than we would otherwise have. A third of the small businesses around the country that we are proud of are only in the business because you provide for them an opportunity to install solar panels on the roofs and all that. So thanks for... I'm sure it, it probably took them at least another 10 years before they, they thought voting green, but they became an ally because we were able to show with facts that uh, we had reality to our arguments. And I think that has resonated and is still resonating and there are examples in some regions and we're not the only ones that have done good work I, I should concede that in the rural region in the west of the country 
Social Democrats for generations have invested into transforming that region, which was at some time dominated exclusively by coal and steel. And it's still an energy-oriented region, but with new energies, they they managed to transform the region. And globally, you, you meet a lot of people who say, oh, can you tell me about the rural region and how you achieved that? So so there there is examples. And what people want to know is, are you going to invest into our problems as much as you invested then? And some people in Eastern Germany are suspicious. They are afraid that they might be treated as second rank and not taken seriously. And if we overcome that, I think we can win. So now jumping to the EU level, how do you approach some of these challenges 25% of electricity generation is coal-based. And, you know, a, a Paris-compliance scenario by 2030 effectively means, you know, almost no EU coal. Um, can you sell countries like Poland on the case for the just transition, for instance? That's a tough, hmm. a tough question. And uh, we have to concede that uh, we've not been utterly successful. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a slowdown and a weakening of the ambition. If you listen to the president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, he will still say Europe wants to be the most innovative energy region in the world with the best renewables energy, with the highest level of energy efficiency. But that's not borne out by what happens on the ground. And there's been a weakening of the thrust and a weakening of the ambition. And pre- right now, we don't have a single national government around the EU that, I, that, in my opinion, is really pushing very hard to go in the direction that we've always argued for. So the, the talk... We're still talking the talk, but nobody's walking the walk energetically enough. Um, That being said, the European Parliament plays a major role in, in, in a progressive way to, to enhance the goals. And uh, the work that some of my colleagues have been doing has really been exceptional. And science is, is of great help. Now, I think there are a couple of uh, specific issues that you have to take into account. In the European Union, which is the most complicated governance structure that you can find globally, I would assume, (laughs) because it's such an ambitious Mm -hmm. attempt to overcome national contradictions and and put everything that in the past would have led us to war with each other in the in the context of negotiated solutions in the EU you cannot sort of isolate certain topics completely from everything else so if you want Poland to play along with regard to energy transformation you have to understand that Polish concerns in the sector of uh, energy policy 
also have to be taken seriously. And the Polish at the moment are very upset about this plan between Russia and Germany to build this new additional Baltic Sea pipeline. My party happens to oppose that. Um, we find ourselves in an unlikely uh, coalition there with President Trump. We've been opposing that for longer than him and for different reasons. But you cannot expect a member of the EU to show solidarity when they find that nobody else is showing solidarity with their concerns. So that's a very generic point, but it's very relevant here. Second, you have to be flexible in moving forward. I recall that at some point when the EU tried to define its climate ambition, Poland was reluctant to sign on to the uh, numbers. At the time, Germany said, look, do, let's do some um, sharing exercise. So we will deliver more to facilitate your participation. That's a very specific way of demonstrating partnership. If one country just says, I'm doing my part and I have no responsibility for anybody else, everybody's just looking at national context, Europe would be in danger of falling apart. So, so flexibility, well, you may not be in a situation to move forward ambitiously on one count, but maybe you can contribute more in another dimension. People are, and countries are, as you say, in a very different state to start with. France has 75% nuclear. For them, it's pretty easy to say, we face out coal. It sounds great, but mm. it's not such a hard ambition. For Poland, that would be much more difficult. On the other hand, for the French, the goal that they want to reduce their share of nuclear from 75 to 50 is just as ambitious as the German plan to phase out nuclear completely because that's what about 25%, that's about what we had when we decided to go there. And this is a second dimension, to, to be flexible. And the third is bring the people in hmm. because some of the established interest groups, the powers that be, are conservative. And uh, we managed the energy transition in Germany to make a big leap forward because we brought in new players. Energy generation, as I said before, was controlled by four big utilities. They had an oligopoly. Through the feed-in tariff, we created a whole new class of civic entrepreneurs. Every private citizen could band together with his friends or colleagues, invest into building a windmill or putting uh, solar panels on their houses or whatever, and they could start producing. And a new industry sprang from that, a new middle-sized industry that grew and grew in exports. And uh, if we had not managed to bring new players into the old game, we would have installed. So find ways of including 
civic, civic activity. That's the third lesson, I think, that we need to learn. Got it. Another one of your ideas has been um, the idea of a sustainable financial system, sustainable finance. We are finally starting to see some real traction and some real discourse about the EU, uh, a number of other efforts in the UK or other countries that, are, uh, that mean a real sort of rethink about what fiduciary duty means. But maybe it would be helpful. I mean, when you think about sustainable finance, what are the core elements? What does that represent to you? That's indeed uh, a very transformative development there. When I first started getting interested in these topics, that was about six years ago, you could hardly find a lot of people that, that really knew the stuff. I mean, some people at UNEP... Uh, some other smart people, in particular some analysts that had turned environmentalists from the UK. The governor of the Bank of England was an okay. early leader. But that, that was few voices. And um, the speed of the change has been enormous. Today, big financial hitters like Allianz or Munich Re find themselves in a situation where they have to move forward. I've been talking to Munich Re for years, and, and they would all, always sort of kick the can down the alley. Now they've decided they have to move, and that's happening with many players I think the uh, divestment movement has played a major role there. Uh, we all owe a lot to Bill McKibben and, mm. and the kids from from New England who invented that, um, and uh, to other um, institutional players like Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Church of Sweden and mm. the Church of England who have been early leaders also. Uh, but in addition, the analysis that... Here, ethics and financial reason coincide has won the day. Just with the uh, ethical approach that it's amoral to earn money with uh, destroying the basic of civilization by letting runaway climate change get out of control that in itself would have not have won the day but the analysis that this implies uh, the risk of being landed with uh, sunken assets with with assets that are not worth anything that that pincer movement of ethics and finance has been uh, very effective I think um, we owe um, to some far-sighted people uh, that have managed to use international institutions smartly, like the G20 Working Group, uh, led by the UK and China, played a major role. And then also, in this case, we must applaud the Commission, uh, in, um, in particular the Vice President in charge of this matter, who's really been a leader 
and uh, found the right people uh, for the uh, expert group that you mentioned. And today, I would say that even the uh, negative attitude that the present U.S. administration is having on all these issues is not enough, not strong enough to keep us from moving forward. The one thing that we should not do is get caught in um, in infighting over two specific issues. Like, I mean, we need a definition for what a green bond is, which we don't have yet. But even if we would get such a definition, a very precise definition there, still green bonds would cover only a very small share of the overall market. So let's not forget that this is about greening finance and not just about adding a financial segment to the broader business. The transformation is about all the sectors. And secondly, it would the the movement forward would be much easier if we manage to put a price on carbon. And the uh, experience with the European EDS has not always been encouraging. Up until last year, the, the price for one ton of carbon emissions languished at about five euros per ton. It's risen now. At 21. Uh, <laughs> right. And that's not good enough a price to cover the externalities, and that's not a good enough a price to give those entrepreneurs that want to take the high road of investment, uh, of winning their future competitiveness on the basis of sustainability, an advantage in the market. And if we could make that happen, I think the transformative effect would be much greater even. And this is the kind of coordination that we need to facilitate with all kinds of actors being part of the game, not just politicians, also industry, also NGOs, also science, putting a fair price on carbon and then facilitating the uh, greening of finance. I think that could that could be the formula. How, how do you reconcile what what appears to be two different definitions of sustainable finance? One on the political end, and the other from an institutional investor, pension funds, you name it. But the political end looks at outcomes. They want to see investment. They want to see, I mean, material, physical greening. They want to see that kind of infrastructure. The financial side certainly rec- they recognize that opportunity, and they're investing in that. Um, but they also think about sustainable finance in, in a much broader, more abstract sense. It's about um, fiduciary duty. It's about uh, environmental, social, and governance risks, irrespective of the sector. It's, you know, to go back to the divestment rather than divesting coal, it's more about engagement in, in many instances. I'm not sure I see a um, basic contradiction there. Of course, we're approaching the issues from different ends. But then, in order to find solutions, those uh, different approaches have to find common ground. 
and uh, some investors may look at issues in a narrow way as some of us also do too often but I find a, an increasing number of investors that have a wide vision you look at impact investors for instance as one group of people that uh, would not just be defined by the economic interest mm -hmm. And you find all kinds of actors, economic actors, who start understanding that the homo economicus is a very abstract idea and not adequate to, to how we are as human beings. Nobody is just motivated by their economic interest. Mm -hmm. There are always other concerns like what's the world gonna look like that I will hand down to my grandkids, that sort of thinking. Or with uh, family-owned businesses, I inherited this company from my grandfather, and I want to make sure that my grandkids can run the company successfully, and what do I have to do to make that possible? So, so uh, the, uh, the perspectives are wider for an increasing number of economic actors. And also I feel that in politics, more people understand that solutions don't come just by political recipe. We need to cooperate with actors from the business community, with also NGOs, to um, shape the solutions or that we offer in a way that resonates with other sectors uh, of, uh, of society. So, so I think... Yes, it's it's not sort of a, an immediate harm, harmonious agreement, and we will have discussions. But uh, when I look at at people like Nick Robbins, for instance, uh, who who have been driving this conversation by talking to people on different ends, and who. Uh, on different sides of the table and who have also developed their own outlook by learning from the people that they talk to. The Nick Robbins I knew a couple of years ago was not so strong into the just transition argument than the Nick Robbins is today of today. And the just transition, when I first heard the term, was a defensive term from the Spanish trade unions who basically wanted to say the one million subsidy per year per workplace shall continue indefinitely. That's what we consider to be a just transition, which means no transition, just business as usual. So things are changing. And, and I think to have people who facilitate this change is very important. So if you had to be critical, because I think it is actually really helpful um, from your perspective, but if you had to be critical about investors, I mean that in the broadest sense, more about. I think the changes in how we do th things have to be more radical. Hmm. I have grown up politically in an age where industry on one hand and environmentalists, on the other, were two camps of enemies. And the politicians would be the arbiters. We would lobby them to move more in our direction, and industry, of course, would lobby them not to listen to us too much and whatever. So 
every politician always had a very good excuse for not moving too much because they could always point at one of the fighting camps and say, look, we can't because they don't want us to, whatever, the inclination. I think the general setup has changed a lot since Paris. Before Paris, you could imagine that there might be a fossil energy future. And I've seen industry wavering on that. In the years 2008, 2009, they were in Germany on the verge of conceding that fossil was not going to be the future. And then came the big positive, quote unquote, message of the, false, uh, the, the shale revolution. And everybody said, well, wait a minute, maybe there's still a shale alternative. Couldn't we go for shale? And that uh, stopped the movement. With Paris, we have come to a conclusion of this debate. The future is going to be decarbonization, full stop, and we have to be fast. And that is changing the picture for business. Now it's not about waiting to see where the train is going to run. The train's been set on the rails And the only question remaining is, will it move fast enough to get to the station before that falls apart? And that creates a different environment, a different logic, a different philosophy. And that enables businesses, I assume, to partner better and more directly with NGOs and with environmentalists and with science that has been leading the conversation a lot over the last 20 years, which I think reduces the uh, influence of status quo institutional actors like some politicians are. I must say, I've seen so many, we, we negotiated in Germany last autumn over possibly uh, having a governing coalition between the conservatives, the liberals, and the Greens. And the most conservative parts of that conversation when it came to energy was some energy specialists in the in the parties that and I'm impolite I know that had probably read the briefings from the lobbies they pretended to represent Last time, 20 years ago or five years ago, they, they didn't even keep up with the change in the thinking of, of industry. And I think to some degree, these institutional players are now a problem that blocks development. And what we need is new alliances of people who want to be transformers, of people who want to be changing Fast, And I could imagine that we would benefit from breaking ranks with the uh, lazy ones in all the different corners of society, progressive businesses aligning with progressive politicians, with progressive NGO, and sort of reducing the leverage that the slowpokes still have over all of us because we have learned to first settle the issues within 
the industrial sector or within the business community. And we, when you get to the smallest common denominator, then it's hard to move forward as you should. So let's cast away this small common denominator approach and be more ambitious in creating innovative coalitions. Well, great. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I always like ending something, you know, on this ambitious note and with a lot of urgency, which you did. So it's been fascinating to hear about the work that both the EU Parliament and the European Green Party are doing in providing a framework for a more sustainable financial system. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group, here today with Reinhard Butikoffer, member of the European Parliament and co-chair of the European Green Party. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.